We're going to be talking about cosmic chaos. Now, I want to share a couple of things real quickly before we get into this. It's very sobering what we're teaching out of the book of Revelation. We're just teaching the book, and it's a very sobering thing. The judgments of God are falling on the world, and when you look at what John saw and you talk about it, you go, wow, why would God do that? And let me just give you a couple of verses. Abraham said this, shall not the God of all the earth or the judge of all the earth do right? And then the Bible says that God is just in all of his judgments. And you know what it comes down to, folks, is we don't see like God sees. We don't see sin like God sees sin. There's so much we're blind to, and we don't have a sense of how God's wrath stores up, builds up, and how he created the universe to be a world of consequences. The world that we live in is a world of consequences. There's no getting away from it. If you do right, you'll be blessed for it. If you do wrong, you will receive harsh consequences for it. And God is obliged to answer sin. Now, we hear about he's a God of love. He is a God of love. But let me tell you something. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of holiness, and that means he's got to answer the sin issue. Now, Genesis is the book of beginnings. Revelation is the book of endings. In Genesis, it all started beginning with the fall. And in, in the Revelations, we see the ultimate consequence for the fall. Genesis, book of beginnings. Revelation, book of endings. We're looking at the ending of civilization as we have known it. And I want you to also keep in mind that it's the darkest before the sun shines. It is the darkest before the dawn. And keep in mind as we go through these judgments, and they are, they are tough, but as we go through them, keep this in mind. It is leading right up to the return of Jesus Christ to this world. And when he comes, he's going to set up a brand new kingdom, a glorious new kingdom. And so, yes, it's bad, but as soon as that bad is done, it's going to be oh so good. Amen? So let's look tonight at further. Uh, I'll give you a little recap here before we stand up and read some verses. Last time in chapters 4 and 5, an incredible drama unfolded before John's eyes. You know, I want to pray now. Can we stand together and just pray now? Because I don't want to have to stop once I get going. So, Father, we just thank you that we are in the end of time. We are in the closing seconds of this dispensation. And we ask you, Lord God, open our eyes, open our hearts, give us understanding, give us eyes to see, ears to hear what the Lord is saying to the church. Help us to be ready for that certain return. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, I open my heart to the word. Speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. You can be seated. Now, last time in chapters 4 and 5, an incredible drama unfolded before John's eyes. It was amazing. It had to do with, and remember this, one, this is all about revelations, one, the absolute sovereignty of God in the affairs of men. God is in charge of his world. God is in charge of his universe. He is sovereign. Second, the absolute earthly authority of Jesus the Messiah. It is Jesus who is dispensing the judgments 
that come from these seals and trumpets and bowls. It's Jesus. So, well, that doesn't sound like the Jesus walking around in sandals with long hair saying neat things. Well, he first came as the Lamb of God. He will judge as the Lion of Judah. You don't mess with Jesus. I'm going to tell you, you don't. Because in the beginning was the Word, words with God, Word was God. So he wasn't just some first century prophet saying neat things uh, about people. No, he was God in flesh. So third, the providence of God in the coming world tribulation. John is left totally speechless by what he witnesses and he knows as he watches God is in complete charge of this great tribulation period of seven years. Then at the beginning of chapter 6, we saw the opening of the first four seals. And the dreaded four horsemen of the apocalypse rode forth to destroy. And here's who they were. First one was Antichrist. Second one, war. Third one, famine. The fourth one, plague. Antichrist comes into history riding a white horse. The white horse is symbolic of him looking good, looking like he intends for good to come to people, like he has good intentions, good motives, but he does not. He's antichrist, all right? So he comes in deceptively, like the good guy riding the white horse, but he is anti-Christ. He is against Christ, and time will show it. Following him comes the horse of war. The worst war the world's ever witnessed will happen during this great tribulation period of seven years. Famine follows war. Terrible famine will sweep the earth. People will be starving all over the globe. There will be an incredible food shortage and incredible hyperinflation. Plague, chloros, is the Greek word used here, chloros, from which we get plague. Plagues will move across the planet. Plagues that will wipe out many, many people. If you missed last week, I would grab the CD if I were you and get caught up because it's really worth hearing. This will get you to witnessing to people. You don't want to be here during this time period. Keep in mind, all four of these horses ride specifically in a seven-year time period called the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament or the Great Tribulation in the New Testament. It is seven years of hell on earth. Nothing like this the earth has ever seen. It will be awful. So these four horses are specifically released in that seven-year time period, one after the other. Now we come to the fifth seal. That's the first four seals. There were seven seals to be opened. We saw that Jesus Christ is the only one who can open those seals. He's the only one worthy to open the seals roll out the scroll, and release these judgments. There was not another creature in heaven, earth, or under the earth found worthy to open them but him. So the first four seals are the horsemen. Now we come to the fifth seal. When the fifth seal is open, no longer do ghastly scenes of earth pass before us. The view shifts to heaven where an altar is seen. Let's look at it. Verse 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because, and this is chapter 6. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Now John is being given a vision of martyrs, people who had given their life for the cause of Christ. He sees them under an altar and he sees their souls 
And I've always told you, you know, if you've been here for any length of period at all, when I preach about when a Christian dies, his spirit or soul, his inner man, immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be instantly present with the Lord if you die as a believer. Now, John looks and he sees a multitude of these souls slain because of the word of God. They refused to backtrack, they refused to recant, and they were martyred. And look what they said. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? We want justice, we want vengeance. And they're saying to the Lord, How long? How long are you going to make us wait until you take vengeance on those who killed us because we were standing for you? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait just a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Very important here. You've got people who have been martyred. They're under this altar. They say, how long? And God says to them, when the last one of your brethren has been killed, I'm going to mete out justice for it. So just hang on. Your vindication is coming. Okay? Now, just a little bit of Old Testament teaching here. Just as the blood of sacrificial animals in Old Testament times was poured at the bottom of the altar, so the souls of those that gave their lives for God are represented in the same place as under the altar. Notice John's use, very important here, of they, them, those. Let me take you back and show you real quickly. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants. So instead of John saying, we, our, or us, he's saying they, them, and those. He's not using inclusive language because these are not church saints. These are tribulation saints. If he'd been talking about church saints, he'd said, well, we, we here in heaven, we here, you know, we saw this and we did that and we were doing this and that and the other, but he doesn't. He's looking at another crowd. He says, they, them, those. And later in a minute, he's going to want to know who they are. But we know they're tribulation saints. They're people who were martyred during this seven-year time period called the Great Tribulation. In chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, one of the elders representing the church asked, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? He's mystified. And he was told, these are they who have come out of the Great Tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now notice he uses the article, the. He's not just talking about any tribulation. He's talking about the one and only great tribulation. That's the seven years. I personally believe the world is so lining up for these seven years to take place. All the players are in position. It could really be launched at any time. The rapture of the church could happen at any moment. He tells them, they've come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white. And how they do that in what? Everybody preached to me. In the blood of the Lamb. That's how they got white. 
That's how they got their robes white as snow. These tribulation saints want to know how long it's going to be before their blood is avenged. And remember, John's revelation is largely about the times of avenging. That's what the revelation is about. The time of God avenging sin on the earth. And the beginning of a brand new day. They are told that others would also die before full vengeance is poured out on the persecutors, which will happen at the return of Christ. So, dearly beloved, be careful what you do against God's saints. And pray for those who abuse you and misuse you because you're a Christian, because this shows us without a doubt there is a fierce judgment coming upon them one day. So that's the fifth seal. The fifth seal is this vision of these souls under the altar of martyred tribulation saints. That's the fifth seal. Now he opens up the sixth seal. And what is released? Cosmic catastrophes. When the sixth seal is broken, the scene shifts back to earth. We're leaving heaven now and this vision of these souls, and we're going back down to earth for a picture of the cataclysms, the chaos, and the confusion which is going to befall much of the world at this stage of human history. Okay? Now God begins to act. These horrific events are occurring during the first one or two years of the tribulation, the first half. We're not even to the second half yet, which is way worse. This is the first half. This is just the beginning. He says in verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake, seismos megos is the Greek, a fierce earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky plummeted to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky rolled up or receded like a scroll rolling up, and catch this now, every mountain. Everybody say every mountain with me. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, I want to tell you about my study in the Word of God for all these years. God doesn't waste a word. If God says every, God means every. He doesn't say kind of every, or it might be every, or it's going to be close to every. This earthquake, Seismos Megos, is going to shake the planet. This is a fearsome sight we're looking at. The earth, says John, will be violently shaken. Killer earthquakes will rock the planet. A worldwide blackout will occur as a result of volcanic and seismic disturbances when ash is spewed into the sky. That's why it says that the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair and the moon turned blood red. And there will be an awesome reddening of the moon as when a total eclipse occurs. Only here there is another cause. Possibly dangerous contamination of the atmosphere could cause this because I read this morning in Isaiah, not even looking for confirmation of the book of Revelations. I'm just going through Isaiah and Jeremiah over and over again. And Isaiah, this morning in my devotions, he mentions the world being rocked like a drunken man. And he mentioned, Isaiah did, I never caught this, he mentioned the sky receding like a scroll. 
Even the prophet Joel predicted, look at this, the moon will be turned into blood. The moon will be turned into blood. That's what Joel predicted. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, look how the different writers of the Bible totally agree without talking about it amongst themselves. Jesus said immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Same thing, same word. In addition, meteors, possibly asteroids, and other interplanetary matter slam into the earth. Unlike the ones we sometimes see streaking through the sky and disappearing, these will strike the ground. That's what John saw. That's what he said. They will not vaporize before they hit. They will strike the ground. John said that even mountains and islands were moved. He saw the cosmic catastrophes were so bad that, quote, then the kings of the earth, the presidents, the dictators, the kings, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. You know why I think they're in caves and rocks of the mountains? Because everything that man has built is being decimated. So they're having to find the safest thing they can. So they get into caves and rocks of the mountains and they called to the mountains and the rocks, John said, he heard this. He had audio, audio visions. And he said, they were saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice, they're not saying hide us from the meteorites. They're saying hide us from his face and from his anger. Because it's going to be obvious by now, ladies and gentlemen, that this is not normal. This is not natural. This is not something that just happens. They are going to recognize this is God's judgment. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? The answer, apart from the blood, nobody Now, we're going to have to wait for chapter 8 to see what the seventh seal, that's the sixth seal that we just finished, the seventh seal, we're going to have to wait until chapter 8 to see what it brings, but now we're going to make another visit into heaven. Notice John is going heaven, earth, heaven, earth, heaven, earth, as the vision takes him up to see things in heaven and then back down to earth to see what's coming upon this world. But he's going to be taken back up into heaven and he's going to see again something about these tribulation saints. What does he see? After this, beginning with chapter 7, verse 1, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. So here are literally angels holding the winds from blowing. There is a deathly calm over the whole earth. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power, watch this, to harm the land and harm the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees 
until we, that is the angels, put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now there's about to be a divine sealing on a group of people that matter a lot. Then John heard the number of those who were going to be sealed. And it was 144,000 Jews from all the tribes of Israel. 144,000. Well, who are they? John then names the 12 tribes. 12,000 apiece. 12 times 12, 144. You'll notice that between the 6th and the 7th seal, an interlude appears. Consisting of the entire chapter, 7. Chapter 7 is an interlude. If you're writing in your notes, you ought to write down. Chapter 7 is an interlude between judgments. It is a moment where we're taken behind the curtain to see what is happening behind the scenes in the spiritual world before this seventh seal is opened and the judgment released. It's a moment of pause. As John is shown a vision of those who will come to Christ during the great tribulation. And John watches a special sealing of what we will call tribulation believers takes place. I love that. I don't know how well you can see that visual, but they're smiling, they're rejoicing as the angel puts this seal on their foreheads. We see them being sealed on their foreheads. And this seal is like the seal of a notary on a document. Here's what it implies. It implies protection, legalization, authority, and authenticity. Regardless of the winds of adversity, this 144,000 Jewish people are going to fulfill their ministry. God has sealed them. And can I tell you something about you? You've been sealed. Not with this seal, but you have been sealed with the spirit of redemption. And I like to say signed, sealed, and delivered. You've already been sealed with the Holy Ghost. It's not this seal. This is for those Jewish people. But there is a seal on your life. And that means you are bought and paid for. Your destination is taken care of. No man can take you out of his hands. No devil can take you out of his hands. You have been signed, sealed, and delivered by the Spirit of Redemption. And that's a great blessing. And I feel just like those folks right there. I've got to show them again. I'm happy like that. Amen? That's, that's a good thing. All right. Now, isn't it ironic? The false Christ, the imposter, the liar, and the thief, and the murderer will also cause those submitted to his evil system to be marked on their foreheads with what John calls in a later chapter the mark of the beast. We're going to get into that in a couple of weeks. Mark of the beast. I want to tell you something, church. This is so real. It'll happen one day. This mark also has a sealing effect, but not for glory, but damnation, not for salvation, but eternal loss and not eternal gain. Never receive that mark. And if somebody in the Great Tribulation ever gets a hold of this CD, I want you to hear me. Don't take the mark on your forehead because it will damn you. Thus says the word of God. 
Isn't it ironic? The imposter, the counterfeiter, will do with those submitted to his evil system exactly what God does with those who are his. Clearly, these that are being sealed in chapter 7 are Israelites, end-time Jewish people, who accept Christ as Messiah and Savior after the rapture, becoming the godly remnant of the end times. I'm going to say there are 144,000 billygrams. Because look at what they do. During the first three and a half years of the tribulation, they will be the dynamic witnesses of God. They will proclaim the gospel spiritually and supernaturally protected while they spread the gospel. They've got the seal. So when Antichrist tries to kill them, there will be a season there where he won't be able to because this 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams are going to cover the globe with the gospel and that's where all the tribulation saints come from. They're preaching. God will always have himself a witness, even in the worst of times. They will enjoy divine protection during this time period from the vicious attacks of Antichrist. And John not only saw the 144,000, but he saw the fruit of their ministry. And the fruit of their ministry is a mind-blowing blessing. It says, quote, After this I looked, and there before me there was a multitude that I couldn't even count. From every nation, ethnos, that means every race, ethnos, tribe, people, and language every nook and cranny of the world and the people in it are going to have representatives out of it who have been saved by the preaching of this 144,000 standing before the throne and in front of the lamb and they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands what they put down before Jesus when he wrote in Jerusalem palm branches something about palm branches God likes and they cried out with a loud voice. I want you all to preach this with me, can you? Say it. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne. And they worshiped God saying, are you ready, everybody? Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Hallelujah. Oh, I'll tell you, heaven's going to be nothing but endless worship. If you don't like worship, get over it. You're going to be doing a lot of it. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And he answered, sir, you, or I answered, says John, to the angel, sir, you know. And then the angel said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So you've got the 144,000, and then you've got this countless number of people saved in the great tribulation. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. And I love this next part. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. That tells me in their persecution they hungered and they thirsted. Tracked by the Antichrist. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
You ought to say amen on that one. Here in Texas. Why? Why? Because the lamb is at the center of the throne and he will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a description of Gentile people who come to Christ under the preaching of the 144,000. Amazingly, one of the purposes of the Great Tribulation is to spark a worldwide revival. It'll be hell on earth and terrible martyrdom, but at the same time, there's going to be a great sweep of souls into the kingdom of God. These multitudes dressed in white, worshiping before the throne of God, are the result. People will get saved during the Great Tribulation, but most will die martyrs' deaths. Now we come to the seventh seal, chapter 8, verse 1. Everybody say, praise God. Are you ready for the seventh seal? So now the pause ends, and when he had opened the seventh seal, John saw there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. That says what's about to happen is extremely serious. That's why there is the pause and the silence. As a matter of fact, the silence of half an hour has been called by theologians for centuries the great silence. Up to now, the Lamb of God has been engaged breaking the seals of the mysterious role, which he only was worthy to touch or look upon. Six of the seals have been broken. One yet remains. As that seal is broken, there is a great and awful expectancy seen rising in the angelic company looking on. All of heaven literally becomes mute at what is about to take place. John then relays what follows. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. And I don't know if you can see their faces. Their faces are grieved because of what they know these trumpets are going to bring. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar where those souls of the martyrs had been. This other angel is no doubt the Lord Jesus Christ himself. No other creature in heaven could answer prayers but Christ himself. And we're about to see that these are the prayers of his martyred saints. And only the high priest, and Jesus is our great high priest, Hebrews tells us, only the high priest was allowed to make an offering on the brazen and golden altars like we see taking place here in chapter 8. So it's the Lord. We're seeing the Lord moving now in heaven. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. So remember this, saints. When you pray, it goes into heaven and it's preserved. The prayers of the saints are precious to God. It goes on. The prayers John sees are the prayers of the tribulation believers, what they have prayed. It is the sum total of the cries of the martyrs and the persecuted believers that have risen to the throne room of God demanding justice. They're saying, Lord, we have been so unjustly persecuted. We stood for what was right and not what was wrong. We stood for your name and your word. We stood with your blood and your cross and your resurrection. We stood for your sacrifice, and we did good, and we prayed for people, and we blessed them. And for all of this, we are sorely persecuted and even killed. And when you pray those prayers, they go to heaven, and they are saved. 
preserved. And they are opened up in the presence of God during this great tribulation, demanding justice. John says, The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Following this offering on the heavenly altar of incense and the prayers of God's people, cataclysmic events begin to take place on earth as God's wrath is poured out. I've told you often, many times what happens in the physical world is a repercussion of what's happening in the spiritual world. And when these prayers are given to God, asking for justice, it manifests on earth in these fearsome judgments. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Now these thundering, lightning, and earthquakes are only a prelude of what's about to take place. The seven seals have now been broken, and it's time now for the second phase of God's judgments, the blowing of the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is so fearsome because it paves the way, it opens the way for the seven trumpets to be blown. So the trumpets are worse than the seals. Let's look at a couple of them. Then the angels, the seven angels, holding the seven trumpets, prepare to blow their mighty blasts. Trumpets in Bible times signaled a time of solemnity or celebration. Trumpets were also associated with war, with assembling and marching, with festivals, with uh, introduction of royalty, with the power of God, with overthrow of the ungodly, and with the coming of Christ. All these different uses of the trumpet are found in the Bible. But now they are announcing judgment. These seven angels that stand in the presence of God, whose responsibility it is to sound the trumpets, appear to occupy a high and heavenly position. It's likely the archangels Michael and Gabriel are in their number as they prepare to sound the world's ecology is in view. So if you're worried about global warming, forget it. This is what's going to happen with our world. The first trumpet, the first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. Now, don't let this go past you. One-third of the globe was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned. And all the green grass, all of it, was burned. To me, this means something has happened with the sun or it's a supernatural judgment, one or the other. But I want you to catch these. Don't let it go past you. One-third, one-third, and then all of the green grass. thought about that today, looking at my yard. One day. So this is the first trumpet. No wonder it was somber in heaven. No wonder that pause. No wonder that solemnity. There will be firestorms of incredible magnitude at the sounding of the first trumpet. Firestorms. There is no question that John could be describing a nuclear holocaust, although he doesn't, God doesn't need that. I read this week when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, 
It says it was a supernatural fire that fell from heaven. So while this sounds nuclear, God doesn't have to use nuclear. It can fall from heaven via God. Because that's what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the ground, the trees, and the green grass all are affected. The ground, the trees, God's beautiful creation. It breaks my heart to read this. It breaks my heart to hear this. I love what God has made. I don't love it more than him, but I love what God has made. And it's heartbreaking to see what sin brings things to. It's heartbreaking. This is the beginning of the end of the ecology as we have known it. It happens in the Great Tribulation. Now here comes the second trumpet as if the first one wasn't bad enough. Then the second angel blew his trumpet and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One third of the water in the sea became blood. I think it became blood because everything in the sea dies. One third of all things living in the sea died. That breaks my heart. The beautiful whales, the fish, the marine life. I hate it. But this is what Revelation shows us. And one-third of all the ships on the sea, the great vessels out there now, were destroyed, one-third of them. Again, this sounds an awful lot like a nuclear blast taking place at sea. Our oceans are filled with submarines and ships armed with nuclear weaponry. We're watching North Korea right now, like hawks. So while these verses perplex the believers of centuries ago, it's very easy for us to imagine such a catastrophe today because we know about nuclear power and it might also be the description of a giant meteor or comet streaking across the sky and plunging into the ocean recent scientific speculations and calculations in the news just recently have pointed out the danger of an asteroid or a comet colliding with the earth causing great catastrophes could be that whatever it is it's going to happen I believe the message of the world on their lips will be, I thought I had more time. I thought I had more time. This is real, and this is what God has said. In 1991, there was considerable concern among astronomers about an asteroid came within a million miles of Earth. Had it been captured by the Earth's gravity, it would have fallen to the Earth. With the second trumpet, one-third of the sea becomes blood, a third of the sea life is killed, and a third of the ships at sea are destroyed. People are going to say, I thought I had more time. You know what sends more people to hell than any single thing? One word. Someday. Someday. I'll get right. Not now. Someday. When these things that you just saw and we're reading about happen... The Bible tells us they will not be repenting. They will be cursing and blaspheming God. So don't say someday. Don't be one of those that say, I thought I had more time. The third trumpet, we're almost done. Then the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of this star was Wormwood, bitterness. 
and it strikes the pure artesian springs of drinking water. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Now, when the third angel sounds, another great star burning like a torch falls upon earth. This is the second comet-like object to strike and contaminate the waters. John makes it clear this time the springs or fresh waters needed for drinking are struck. Once again, let's keep in mind that John was a first-century man being shown 21st-century events. He's using words like or as in his search for words that best describes what he sees. A great star falling from the sky could be anything. But since he called it wormwood, that's translated from a Greek word meaning bitter. You have to think of radioactivity from a nuclear exchange. People would indeed die upon drinking radioactive water. Last trumpet we're going to deal with tonight is the fourth one. I think that's all we can take. <laughs> the fourth angel blew his trumpet. And one-third of the sun was struck. And one-third of the moon and one-third of the stars. Think about the thirds now. And all that this covers, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, and they blacked out. And one-third of the day was dark. Well, of course, if the sun is taken out one-third, one-third of the earth is going to be dark, and also one-third of the night. More than likely because of the burning trees and grass, along with the ash and dust from such horrific explosions, the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars is diminished by one-third. Keep in mind that it took the ash from Mount St. Helens' eruption around 10 years to leave the atmosphere. So the fourth trumpet completes the effect on the ecology. The first four trumpets end or greatly decimate the ecology, land, water, and air. Unbelievably, these calamities and distresses coming upon a planet embroiled in wicked wars, led by the coming Antichrist, are merely the preludes of even more intense woes. Chapter 8 closes with John seeing even worse on the way. This is our last verse. Stand with me and let's read it. He says, Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. You see what I mean about the power of God's Word. Genesis, book of beginnings. Revelation, the book of what? Endings. These are endings, one after another. They are endings before there is a brand new beginning. How many of you can say, I know somebody who needs Jesus. I know somebody who needs to know the Lord. Can I tell you, yes, there's going to be a bunch saved in the Great Tribulation, but the time to respond to grace is right now. When these horrific things are falling upon the earth, you don't want to be here. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we pray that you will speak to us to speak to others. Help us, Lord, in our own lives to... Keep the oil in our lamps, keep the wicks trimmed, and keep the fire burning. Be true to you, faithful to you, with every head bowed. I want to just ask a simple question. If you can say, Pastor Jeff, I used to walk with the Lord closely, but I've gotten away. And I know that he is calling me. He is calling me.
to get right with him, to respond to grace in the hour of grace. Or maybe you've never known him. You've been in church, you've heard a lot of Bible teachings, but you've never had a personal experience or ongoing relationship with Christ Jesus. You know, he loves you tonight, and you're here not by accident, but on purpose. That you can hear these things and see these things and escape the wrath to come. You say, Pastor Jeff, I'm in one of those two categories, and I know that God is dealing with me about getting right with him, coming to him, and walking with him closely. And I'd like to settle it tonight. If that's you, can you raise your hand right where you are? I'm going to give you a chance to pray. I see you. Raise them high. Bless you. I see you. Bless you and you. I'm going to ask right now, do something, would you? I want you to slip out from where you are. And I want you to come down to this altar. Just slip out. Don't worry about what people think. They're not going to be there when you meet God. This is between you and him. I want you to slip out and come. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Just come and stand. Well, why do I have to come down there? Because as soon as you take one step, you have released faith in your life. And God's going to meet you. He's going to be with you. He's going to answer you. So come now. We're going to wait just for a moment.